It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 95.7 in Ottawa and 106.5 in Toronto, as well as anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM. And then you can listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it is a great pleasure to welcome to Moment of Truth, Mr. Mike Downey. He's a Toronto filmmaker. Of course, you may know him uh, more from uh, his best-known works of the Secret Path film trilogy that he co-created with his brother and celebrated uh, Canadian uh, musician icon Gord Downey. The Secret Path tells the tra- tragic story of the Chani Wenjak uh, uh, story of the 12-year-old Anishinaabek boy who died while running away from the, his residential school in 1966. And the three critically acclaimed Secret Path films won Downey a total of four Canadian Secret Canadian Screen Awards. But today we're uh, talking with Mr. Mike Downey about uh, another documentary he made that uh, recently aired on the nature of things. And uh, it is also streaming on CBC Gems. You can go and, and catch this anytime. It is called The COVID Cruise. Directed by Mike Downey and written and produced by Mike as well as David Wells. And it is narrated by David Suzuki. And uh, Mike, first of all, congratulations and welcome to the show. Well, thanks so much, David. Thanks for having me. You know, I uh, I had the chance, of course, to to watch the uh, the COVID cruise, and um, I have to tell you that uh, it really left me. Uh, uh, I felt like I was watching a suspense film. So, is that what yeah. you were hoping that you would achieve in in wanting to get people to feel that in the in the gut, you know, in their gut, the the, the story? Because even though it was so familiar. Uh, it still left me with that suspensefulness. Yeah, you know, when we first started looking at it, they, it was, um, you know, doing the research, it, it felt like, you know, we were embarking on a horror film. Mm. Um, suspense film, I love that. I love, uh, you know, you putting it into that, that category. Um, and, and I guess it's, you know, I, I guess I shouldn't have been too surprised because I think, you know, we look at things, we see things from, I guess, a news perspective often. You know, there's so much going on in the world. Certainly in those early days of the coronavirus, you know, the stories that were tumbling out, you know, as each country had their first case and had their first death. And, we, we you know, mm-hmm. we all realized, I guess, collectively that this thing was not just going to go away or not just stay in China. Um, but you know, as I started to say, you look at things kind of through a news uh, lens. Mm. And then when you really start to hear from the people who were there, who experienced it, who witnessed it, who tried to stop it, you know, the doctors and the, and you know, a lot of brave individuals. Well, of course, you just go deeper, but you get a real appreciation for, you know, what, what people went through. Um, and the one that kind of the clip that always gets me is towards the end when um, when Gay Corder, the mystery novelist who was on mm-hmm. the ship, who lives in Florida with her filmmaker husband Phil, mm-hmm. when she said, "You know, you know, to wrap it up, we don't joke about this. Right? Um, you know, we've both had to have uh, some PTSD counseling, yeah. Yeah. and it was required. And um, because when you go through a, a situation." 
question that you that is life or death, um, you know, that you experience as life or death, it it changes you. So that one has always stayed with me. I I, I just because you know, like we're such creatures of adaption, and and you know, you would think, well, they went through that in February, March. They did eventually get home. You know, they both survived. And then months later, you hear her say something like that. I was just like, wow, that that is just a, you know, such a, such a deep experience and, and such a, you know, a moment of, I guess, just, you know, kind of collective, um, <laughs> collective trauma, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, of course, because we're talking about February when, when all of this started to, to unfold of this year. It wasn't that long ago. And yet, in many ways, it feels like a very, very long time ago. And, it does. You know, and, and so, and then you, you bring in these other people. And, and for people that have not seen this, the COVID cruise yet, which they can, again, watch on a CBC uh, Gem, uh, it's about the Diamond Princess cruise ship that we all remember seeing in the news and about uh, how that, uh, you know, when things started to unfold in Wuhan, China, and this uh, ship had made a stop there, and uh, we, we are then taken inside the, the princess. We see a film footage, I guess, that was shot on people's uh, phones uh, about mm-hmm. the celebration that's going on inside the ship. People are carrying on, and we're, we're taken back to that time prior to uh, the outbreak of COVID when things seem so, so different now. Um, yeah. You know, people actually gathering in rooms and, and having fun. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's really interesting to see that. You know what just popped into my head is that I actually remember seeing some pictures, just some still images recently of, uh, of, of, of um, uh, gatherings and uh, uh, places where people go for corporate meetings and they have their big room, their ballrooms full of people and tables, 10 to 12 people at a table. And when I saw the, the picture, the old pictures of people uh, gathered in these large crowds, I actually got a little tense because it felt really? very odd to me to see that. Um, but, but anyway, that just popped into my head. But yeah. going back, uh, you know, and we see this as it unfolds, and then we get to actually hear some of the announcements made by the captain as things start to get more serious on board the ship. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, you, you guys do such a great job of bringing... Uh, you know, taking us into that story, putting us back in there with the people on board, giving us the the uh, those personal stories that we get to see of a few Canadians as well as some other people, as you just mentioned, uh, that are on board the ship. But we actually get to see their stories unfold, and and they don't always unfold pleasantly. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know, I think that um, you know the it's it's funny to. You know, you you've just reminded me of, you know, when this thing was unfolding. Um, if we just look at what was going on on the ship, like the first reaction was, um, well, the first, I guess, acknowledgement that there had been passenger zero on, on mm-hmm. the Diamond Princess was the the captain announced they were heading back to Tokyo. It was like it was early, a day early, or you know. Mm-hmm. Not not really that early, but that they were going back and that they would all be tested on the ship. Right. And the first reaction was from a f- quite a few people was, oh, okay, great, an extra day on the ship. <laughs> well, um, and the interesting thing is, is that you go back to how little we knew. Mm. Well, they got back to uh, Yokohama uh, uh, Harbor. Yeah. And yeah, they were, you know, getting tested 
by Japanese health authorities, but they hadn't started a quarantine. So they were all moving around the ship. They really were treating it like, oh, it's an extra day. You know, I think I'd like to, you know, do this activity or I never had a chance to do this and I got an extra day, so I'm going to do that. So, and it's interesting when, you know, that sort of, and then of course they realize when they get the results 24 hours later um, that there's 10 people on board who have, who are tested positive. Then the quarantine starts, but you know, makes, it it reminds me a little bit of, you know, when it first started, you know, to come here. And I remember I was away with my family on a little, on a March break ski trip. And every day it takes like, Oh, they, they shut down the NBA, the, and they, you know, the sports teams are all, sh- you know, shuttering. Mm-hmm. And it kind of takes like several um, incidents almost for it to kind of finally go, I guess this affects us, you know, like mm-hmm. we're going home early. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to, you know, and it was the same thing on the ship. They, that, uh, and there's, you know, one of the experts um, mentions denial. Right. And and just how unavoidable denial is when something like this first first starts. Mm. And so I, I like, you know, I like the, the way the film does a few things. It peels back a few layers. Right. Goes takes us back to February, March. But I, I think it also the experiences they had, which were quite, you know, extraordinary being in Japan, but not in Japan because mm-hmm. they're in full quarantine off, you know, you know, in the, in the bay, mm-hmm. um, in the Harbor. But those, I think those experience everybody went through in their own way, you know, back in their hometown, you know, wherever they live, they went through several of those pieces where you kind of go from denial and then you go right from denial into like, uh Oh, and you go straight into this. Everyone's different, but maybe paranoia, certainly some real fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you are, um, I guess whatever measure that you think is appropriate, you know, all of a sudden uh, just 24 hours earlier, you were like, well, that that's kind of over the top, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the next thing you know, you are wiping down everything that comes into the house and you are leaving things on your porch for three days. And you know, all the things that, that you've been told, right. and, um, you know, I, I guess, I guess it's just important, you know, for all of us, you know, to be maybe to go back a little bit to those early days because, um, you know, the fatigue and as I mentioned, we are such creatures of adaption. It's so easy to just start to really get used to and and to drop your guard, I guess, you know, when it comes to not catching this, um, this terrible virus. But, um, yeah, I I really hope that people who see the film kind of, it just kind of reawakens that, not the paranoia, but, but reawakens, you know, the need to keep themselves and their families safe. Um, Cause you know, we're getting there, but you know, if you look at the rollout of the vaccine for us in here in Canada, it's going to take months, you know, it mm-hmm. really is. Oh, yeah. oh, you yeah. know, it's, it's going to be such a massive, you know, undertaking right. um, and it's going to take a while. So it's yeah. important to run through that, you know, as they say, and, in, in, in running, you got to run through that finish line. You know, you can't pull up. 
Yes, just because you and, think it's close. And I'm sure there'll be other questions about the uh, the the vaccine itself as the these things start to uh, uh, unroll and, and roll out mm-hmm. to be distributed. Uh, a couple of questions and things that come to mind, Mike. One is that, yeah, you, like you said, it does peel back a few things. I think the, also what's interesting is about the story is this is familiar. We remember the ship. We remember the news story about it. We remember watching it. Uh, but we didn't get to see this depth of the story. This is just one of the stories that was happening daily, right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. it was unfolding and so much stuff was going on. And this was just one of those stories that we kept seeing about. And, and I love how, you know, every day uh, that you, you put up on there and, and you use the uh, one of the ship's windows to, to do this, to say, you know, uh, day mm-hmm. one, uh, COVID-19, zero. And then the next day there's 10 and then the next day there's like, you know, I don't know, 100 or something. And, and it keeps exploding. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first heard about this ship and I, I thought about all these people in this confined area on a ship, I thought to myself, that can't be good. <laughs> that can't be good yeah. with all these people locked into the same place, breathing somewhat of the same air. Uh, so, I, I, you know, my, my part of myself went, Hmm, because you know you, you got you talk about this in the story uh, a, a little bit about it's a petri dish. It was a petri dish, and yeah. in retrospect, that's that's what we see. But I thought, I wonder if they're going to use it as a petri dish, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And first of all, you know, you, the other thing we get to see, which we didn't necessarily, I don't, I don't think understand completely also when it is docked at the harbor in Yokohama uh, harbor uh, Japan had several questions what do we do with these people do we take them off do we keep them there do we send them home how do we treat this do we find a place to get them all off the ship so that we can quarantine them what to do and so there were all those questions because everybody was being bombarded with questions they had not anticipated and and thought Mm -hmm. about before Mm It's true. It's true. And, you know, when, you, when, um, when that ship returned early, when the Diamond Princess returned early to Tokyo, basically, um, you know, the Japanese authorities were in charge. The health authorities took yeah. over. So, yeah. um, and, you know, at that time, um, there, I mean, the first cluster outbreak outside of China is on the Diamond Princess, but that, but there had been individuals who had tested positive. But, you know, Japan at that time, even with their proximity to China, they were still, I think they were uh, around maybe 20 people in the entire country had tested. And, and of course, you know, all, all of the, um, uh, you know, the protocols were put in place. And all of a sudden, they have this ship pulling in that has 3,711 people on it. Mm-hmm. And they have no idea how many are, uh, well, they, do, they know 10 have just tested positive, but they have no idea how that's about to explode. So they look at the options. The one is to basically, well, let's let everyone disembark and fly home. So uh, the potential to spread the virus to countries all over the world, because it was an international crew, mm-hmm. an international um, you know, list of passengers. And the second one is take, them, take everyone off the boat and put them all into quarantine on land. But they couldn't figure out where they could actually do that. They actually had discussions that maybe they could do it in the uh, athlete's village, which Mm. I believe had just been completed Mm. or was close to being completed for the Summer Olympics. And that was a big factor for the Japanese government. 
Um, because they, at that time, even though, you know, there was everything going on in, in China, in Wuhan, they still fully expected that they would be hosting the Summer Olympics, hosting the world in July, I believe it was, right, right. In, in Tokyo, in Japan, all yep. over Japan. Yep. So, you know, the idea of bringing everybody off the ship, they kind of worried, is this going to be, you know, the accelerant for Japan? Is this mm-hmm. what's going to put Japan into the, you know, mm-hmm. into the massive sort of number of cases? And the third option was to leave them on the ship and to let them sit there for two weeks and, but here's the thing is that that third option, the quarantining on the ship actually wasn't a full quarantine. This was something that right, I didn't right. realize until, you know, we started looking into it. What do they do? How, how do you keep people in their rooms? Well, yeah. they are going to need room service. They're <laughs> going to have to have things, you know, brought to them and taken away. Sure. So that now all of a sudden you have a thousand members of the crew pressed into duty to help th- with this massive, you know, undertaking of delivering. I mean, that, that leaves, I believe it's in the neighborhood of 2,700 passengers mm-hmm. who need to eat three times a day, not to mention, you know, ordering drinks or other things. That, so what ends up happening is you have all these crew, again, not everyone, not, not having full safety equipment and not understanding the transmission. They, I think at that time it was, probably safe to say that most people assumed it was contact surface contact you know railings Mm -hmm. places that people had you know coughed into their hand and touched something but they didn't know what the transmission was and so they keep delivering the food people keep getting sick and the passengers you know getting the information often secondhand uh sometimes it's just on the media you know watching television themselves to find out how many infected people have just been discovered on on board um but, you know, they are uh, just sitting there waiting for the numbers to continue to go up. And, you know, now they're getting into covering up the fresh air vents because maybe it's coming through that, you know, maybe it's coming through the ventilation system, mm-hmm. the HVAC system. Mm-hmm. You know, they're boiling their cutlery. Yeah. They are trying to come up with a way to stay safe. And, of course, nobody has the foggiest idea of what it will be that will actually keep them safe. So, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the crew. I want to come back to the crew and and some of those other stories that uh, that unfolded. But before we do that, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM. And then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm your host, David Moses, and uh, my guest here on Moment of Truth is Mike Downey, Toronto filmmaker, and uh, we're talking about the the, the latest uh, product that he has created with uh, his partner, Dave Wells, the COVID Cruise. It chronicles the COVID Cruise of the uh, the uh, Princess, uh, uh, Diamond Princess cruise ship that we we're all familiar with from earlier this year as the COVID-19 started to unfold. And... 
David, I have to tell you that, or, or Mike, uh, the other thing I wanted to say is that the, your your partner, Dave Dave Wells, and you have worked on a couple of other things, not only for the nature of things, uh, but uh, you've worked on one called the Invasion of the Brain Snatchers. When I saw that, I, I kind of thought this 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 approach somehow somehow makes sense to me in terms of yeah. what you guys have worked on. You you referred to it in 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 sense of a horror. I, I didn't want to do that, but it really kind of felt that way in terms of some elements of how this unfolded. Uh, and the fact is, I guess it is because, and, and this isn't, uh, you know, this this was this really happened. All these stories really happened. You take us into the crew as well. You take us in to meet some of the crew. You get some of the crew interviewed, and you know, it was interesting because, like you said, on board that ship, it wasn't a total lockdown. They had to be. They had to get food. Yes, they were in their rooms, but the people had. They still the crew had to deliver that food to them. You, mm-hmm. you you got some fabulous footage that backed up everything that we were able to see and talk about. In addition, um, you 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 got some uh, you, you did these these interviews remotely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was um, that was the a big you know a real wrinkle on on this film was uh, you know in terms of doing something that we'd never done before. Um, you know, we knew we had people like lined up for interviews in, all over the world. Mm. So from Mumbai to Tokyo to Sydney, Australia, um, uh, Europe, San Francisco, Vancouver, St. John's, like you name it. And um, of course, we normally would put together some kind of, you know, itinerary and, and then head out and some typically work with a Canadian film crew, but mm-hmm. sometimes you work with a local film crew. It depends on just what the routing is like, but, um, or the complexity of the shoots. But in every one of these cases, beside a couple, we did an interview, um, in Quebec and, and, uh, one in Ontario, but everything else we had to hire a local crew. Mm. And so you are, you know, we have, um, you know, basically a phone call. We were able to, you know, share the first interview um, that we did in Vancouver with Spencer Fehrenbacher. Mm-hmm. It was really well, beautifully shot. Um, and we were able to share some of that with the, you know, the crews to say, here's the look that we're really, you know, we're really happy with. Um, and this is the kind of framing. And this is some of the, you know, the establishing scenes that we'd like to do. But basically, you know, all these crews, um, I still don't know what they looked like. We had a phone call and then, you know, they would show up. And then, of course, we also had to go to great lengths uh, to make sure that they all understood that we were that we were asking them to follow a protocol that was agreed upon with the CBC and, you know, the uh, you know, our, our film office here. But that they would need to to sort of live by that because they're working, you know, at our behest mm-hmm. wherever they are. So, you know, we always had to, you know, we had to be very clear that, you know, nobody, you know, we have to take this risk down to the very, very, you know, lowest possible level. Um, and so all of this was done, you know, with a matter of phone calls. And then on the day, you know, I would, sometimes it would be a Zoom call, sometimes FaceTime, but we asked all of the guests, everyone that we interviewed, we asked them to look right into the lens uh, just to create that mm. very first person personal kind of connection. Mm. So then, 
in that situation, you know, even if I have a Zoom interview going, we can't use it because they, you know, they'll be looking down at the laptop, which might be, you know, stationed, right. you know, underneath the camera or whatever. Sure. So then it became, we realized very quickly, it's like, okay, you just need to be a voice uh, in the room. Um, and so I had, I really didn't know um, I could maybe tell by their voice if they were starting to get a little tired or, you know, mm-hmm. if they were getting a little upset. Mm-hmm. But I really had, I was flying blind and I really, I could barely, you know, I mean, the, the crews would send me a still, like, here's the framing, here they are, you know, sitting, mm. here's the lighting. And, but I mean, really, you can't hmm. get a real appreciation sure. of it from a snapshot, you right. know, from a phone. Right. Um, and yet, you know, all these crews, you know, we told them, look, we're not there, you're there, you have to be our eyes and ears in the room. You see somebody who's starting to, you know, their energy is starting to flag or they're, they're maybe getting a little concerned about their own mm. safety. Like you're just going to have to step in and, you know, you're, you're authorized to, you know, do whatever you need to do mm. for people to feel, you know, well, supported and, and safe. Right. Uh, and I got to tell you, uh, David, every interview, you know, every shoot that was, you know, uploaded in the coming hours or days after we would watch them and they would come in and I was just so amazed at just the level of professionalism and just how, what a great job these people did that I'd never met before. And, and, um, and to, you know, to a person, um, the, the men and women that, that, you know, were in the crews that, you know, got themselves out there and, everything for them was complicated. They had to pick up things from the local rental place, you know, Mm, like everything was so complicated, so extra complicated. And yet every one of them, I thought just did such a, such a fabulous job. And it kind of showed me a little, taught me a little something, you know, as a director on a shoot, you're, you're kind of like, there's really nothing that isn't your responsibility. You know, if something goes wrong, you really, it's on you, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe you know that you did what you could, but it kind of comes back to you. But I tell you, in this situation, it was like, I I learned very quickly that I had to give up quite a bit of control. (laughs) And I just, I needed to put my faith in people. I needed to communicate what it was we were trying to do. You know, give them as much information as you could to say, you know, here's the whole idea of our film. Here's what we're trying to, the story we're trying to tell. Of course, not having done the interviews, you don't know all the stories yet. But, you know, it, it was a good lesson for me. You put your faith in people. And I I say, you know, in most cases, they will come through for you. They they will come through for you. You know, they, they're not going to let you down. And that, that was a good, you know, I, I always like working with, with crews that are incredible, creative, hardworking people. And, uh, but... Boy, oh boy, was I ever was I ever blown away by you know by what we um, we got back and, and the work that these people did all over the world for us. You know that's really interesting, Mike, because what I'm also hearing is, and I'm wondering now, is because of how things have changed in the last uh, nine, ten months now, um, because of the way people have had to shoot, like you did with this film remotely, and and the pleasantly surprised results you got. 
Do you think that this might have an effect on how the industry starts to treat things in the future? Do you think there's, it's going to open up doors a little bit more for people in terms of doing things remotely like this, perhaps? Um, you know, I think it probably has to, David, because, you know, as much as I would have liked to have had the chance to <laughs> fly to Sydney or Tokyo, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that, and, you know, quite sometimes, I mean, these are interviews, mm. so... Uh, they make up a big, you know, a, the, these and the establishing scenes, you know, they make up a, a considerable part of the, of the film. Mm-hmm. Typically, you know, in a film like this, uh, you're going to have scenes that you would go and shoot over several days mm-hmm. that would be actuality, right. you know, like fly on the wall. Yep. Um, and, and so those would be very hard to do. Um, but at the same time, when it's an interview and, you know, and, and some shots establishing or B-roll call them, you know, mm. um, I could see how you could spread your production budget further by mm. saying, you know what? I think we're better off by having more faces, voices in the film. Um, and we should line up, you know, uh, a whatever, uh, several days of doing remote interviews. Right. Um, it's incredibly efficient. Like I sat at my home office someday and the, the interviews were long because right. you know, you're, you're not there. So you, sure. you, you tend to, you know, you get maybe ask a question a couple of times, you know, throughout like over a couple of hours, but they, they tended to go much longer than they would in person. Yep. Um, but I could, you know, you could do a couple in a day. Um, but I could see how, you know, in future, you just sort of maybe pick and choose a little bit more and say, you know what, this, uh, you know, we're not going to fly to, you know, name, name a far off place, mm-hmm. but why wouldn't we set up an interview? Uh, you know, we'll do it in the middle of the night uh, from, from here and the crew will, you know, we'll set up everything and we'll send them some visual um, references so they know what, what it is that we're looking for. And um, I could totally see it. I could totally see it. Um, and I think one of the strengths of our film is the fact that you do you meet um, so many people, and and they each have their own story, but there's a common right. uh, story that they all experience, and that is always a really I find a really good storytelling technique when you know you have three or four people telling you what happened in mm-hmm. a situation, yeah. and you know you kind of you overcome some of the personal bias and you, you really get at, you know, a common experience, but of course witnessed, you know, individually. Um, and we were able to do that several times, uh, in the film. So right. yeah, I, I could, I could see how you could, you know, um, get more people, uh, find more subjects. But I think when you get into your, you know, the, the number of scenes that are, are really quite, you know, that you're kind of building the film around, in other words. Right. I think those you're always going to want to be there in person and, and, and also create a relationship. Like we were, I think we were fortunate that this had been such, you can see the emotion still in people's, oh, yeah. you can hear it in their voices, you can see it in their faces months yep. afterwards. Right. But not everything is quite as intense as, right. as this quarantine. So, you know, I do, I, I always feel, you know, David, when, when I'm interviewing somebody in person that, you know, my job is really uh, to create, um, you know, a really great environment, a comfortable environment, a secure environment, because for most people, you know, maybe not the experts, but for most people, a, 
a film crew showing up at their home or work, um, setting up lights, setting up the camera, you know, like it goes on and on. And by the time you get ready to sit down and get started, often people are, you know, they're a little bit, <laughs> it's, it's intimidating, sure. you know, like sure. you, you're, it's, it's hard to, to stay comfortable. So I always find that kind of my job is, is just to kind of find the right, you know, whether it's just try to make people, you know, feel relaxed and everyone's a little different. The way to do it is a little different, but right. I always like the feeling because you're, I, I feel like I'm on really high alert uh, because I want them, I want them to give me their best. And, mm. and um, you know, so uh, that, like I said, not being there very limited uh, and, you know, just sort of say, Hey, why don't you just, I'll tell you what, let's shut down the camera. Let's just go for a little walk. Let's shut, you know, like, let's take a break and all that kind of stuff, which I would normally do right. just to, right. you know, reinvigorate somebody. I, I had no idea. Right. You know, I, I didn't, I couldn't right. do that. So. Right. Uh, we're getting close to the end of, our, end of our time, Mike, but there's a few other things I want to get to. You, you mentioned the couple from the uh, States and uh, in Florida. If that was their home, by the way, beautiful shot. A nice looking yeah. home they've got down yeah, there. Um, looked like Naples or something. But um, anyway, you know, one of the comments that his wife made, I, I particularly uh, found very interesting. The, the one about quarantine. And you guys actually used a graphic to, to show that about what uh, quarantine actually meant. And it went back to the, the old uh, ships, uh, wooden ships, if there was uh, an outbreak of, um, uh, 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 of the Black Plague or something on it. They would, leave, yeah. they would make sure that, sh- that ship was anchored out in harbor and, uh, until everybody was dead and then burn it and, and, yeah, sink it. No, that is uh, wow. what she described as yeah. the Venetian naval history, yeah. where the quarante is forty days, and but the, the the whole the whole idea was leave it out there and uh, let everyone die, and then yeah. burn it. Yeah. And and so that that's the image in her mind as yeah. she's thinking, oh, yeah. I'm now in quarante, yeah. quarantine, yeah. on the yeah. ship in Japan <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah. And yeah, the other thing that, you know, that's really interesting is because we also get to see the testing that is done on several of the people, the husband and wife, the, the, uh, the couple, uh, that are from Richmond Hill. Um, mm-hmm. and we get to see him going into the hospital and his life is very close, uh, it, it, you know, he, because he is yeah. in a very high, uh, high category area and he almost succumbs, but he's able to come back from that very powerful story. But what's interesting there for me, as it is with the, the, um, the woman who is part of the crew and she has a, a roommate who tests positive just with this couple. The husband tests positive, but neither of the others two do, which is, I find really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, they, um, yeah, it is, it is strange how, and, and, you know, you go back then and geez, I don't know, like what in those small, small quarters yeah. and, you know, like not having, uh, I would assume that I'm sure they had masks, but you know, that they did not have a full complement yeah. of, you know, safety, safety right. equipment. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned, uh, yet San Ng and his mm-hmm. wife, Kitty, mm-hmm. and that story, you, you, you nailed it. That story was so powerful. And the, the part that got me when he, I mean, when they first told us was, you know, he, t- he tests positive. And he thinks, yes, okay, right. you know, sure. I, uh, I might be one of those people who get the light symptoms, yep. you know, 80% of people, the symptoms aren't, aren't so bad. I'll, yep. I'll be there. Yep. And then he gets a knock on the door. Uh, 
the next day saying, we're taking you off the ship. And he's like, well, no, I'm, I'm not that bad. Yes, and they're like, no, you, we're, your, your wife is staying here. We're separating you, which I think was very traumatizing for Kitty. And we're taking you uh, to a Japanese hospital. And so off he goes. And when he gets there, they put him in isolation. And the next thing he knows, five Japanese specialists, five doctors show up in his room in full PPE, which he hadn't seen before. Yeah. And he's like, what is going on? Like, I right. don't, I don't know your, your system here, but I'm not that bad. Right. And they're, they basically tell him yeah. you're going to be. Right. And, 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 and yeah. And, and then we'll yeah. let people watch the rest of the story in, yeah. in the documentary because yeah, it, it's by no means the end of the story. Listen, the other thing I wanted to mention is you, you had mentioned, uh, Spencer, uh, Fruenbacher from Vancouver who is on the ship and he shows up in the film. He's also interviewed on, on, uh, the ship, uh, during this whole thing. And we get to see that Sorry. section of his interview, which he learns while he's on, on board. Uh, about how bad it is on the ship. He didn't realize how many people had been infected, and we get to see that live uh, going back to that time. That was another great moment. That was, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right, David. And it also tends to speak to the idea of misinformation or not information or or holding back maybe information. It it just brings up a whole lot of of questions about what was actually going on at that time, even on board the ship. And I'm sure that the crew were trying to do the best job of protecting their their, uh, customers, you know, and and the people on board not to cause panic, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do – and we're we're running out of space. But I do want to mention the last line of the film – pretty much that Spencer gives us. And I think it's a great way to, and, and wow, what a powerful line, which he says, he's talking about wearing masks and why people question wearing masks, that this is a threat, that this is real, and why people question it. And then he mm-hmm. says, if the world can't get together over a pandemic, you know, and we kind of are left hanging mm-hmm. there. If we can't all yeah. get together about a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it was, that was powerful. Yeah. Mike, we're going to get uh, cut off here. So I want to say thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to having you back on the show again in the future. Oh, that'd be great, David. I'll look forward to that for sure. All right. You take care. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and all the best. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. That is the voice of Mike Downey, and we were speaking with Mike about the COVID cruise, and it is the next step in uh, Mike Downey and uh, David Wells' collaboration. They've worked together on documentaries for CBC's The Nature of Things, one of which is The Invasion of the Brain Snatchers, and that won a Canadian Screen Award, and uh, they formed a company in 2015, and The COVID Cruise is their third independent production for The Nature of Things, and uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with him on that. I recommend you go to the uh, CBC Gem and check out the COVID Cruise. You will not be disappointed. It's a film I believe that everybody, everybody should watch and appreciate. Thank you for listening to The Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And once again, it's been a pleasure to have Mr. Mike Downey on the show. And we're going to be back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. 
Type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome to the show Dana and Aideen Scott. Uh, she is here to talk to us about an article that, uh, that she co-authored in The Conversation and is a, it is about the mining push in northern Ontario despite the water crisis on uh, one of a few First Nations and one in particular that we're going to talk about. But before we get there, a little bit about Dana. She is an associate professor at Osgoode Hall Law School and at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. She is a co-director of Osgoode's Environmental Justice and Sustainability Clinic. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. You know, I, I wish uh, in some ways it's a pleasure to speak with you, but the topic of our conversation is somewhat disturbing. Do you agree with that? Of course. Yeah. I mean, it's for me, it's been devastating to keep hearing the news that's coming out of Nishtantaga uh, and other communities in the far north. But I think uh, Nishtantaga First Nation has been hit particularly hard this fall with layering, you know, the water crisis, the evacuation on top of the pandemic. And it's also in the context of, you know, what was we think of as a pre-existing social emergency. There were already, um, you know, a lot of real challenges in terms of housing, uh, overcrowding, mental health and addiction issues. Uh, The community has dealt with several youth suicides over the past number of years and continues to to really struggle. Um, So, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to think about, you know, what they're all going through. The residents now evacuated in Thunder Bay. Um, you know, when thinking about lots of us that are not under such severe challenges are already, you know, so stressed by the pandemic. Yeah, and, and of course, this is not the first time that the community has been in the news. Uh, it's had concerns about its water for years. Yeah, it's the second time in 12 months that the community had to be evacuated because of a complete water shutdown, not just a boil water advisory Mm -hmm. in a place. Um, And yeah, the longest running boil water advisory in the country at 26 years. So, you know, it, it, it's a lot (laughs) to deal with and to hear the community members talk about really a whole generation of people that have never had access to clean drinking water it, you know, it's something that most of us can't really even conceive of or understand. The other thing that is hard for me to understand is how a country like Canada mm-hmm. can allow that to have happened at all. It's an embarrassment, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's shameful, I think. And, you know, we we sometimes put it on particular governments, but this has been going on a really long time. And, you know, it's part of the reason we say, you know, if you force yourself to take a clear look at it, it's hard to say it doesn't look like environmental racism. You know, Mm. it doesn't look like that people just don't care to put enough resources towards solving the problem. And, you know, that that's really is depressing. And uh, of course, the, the other thing that adds on to this, of course, is the, the whole desire for mining in the area that we've heard about the ring of fire and mm-hmm. and what's going on there, and even despite what's happened with the community, despite what's happened with COVID nineteen, and and in spite of all these things, 
your article refers to the the push of of mining continues. Yeah, that that's going on right up to today. So, and Nishantika has been trying uh, really since the spring to get Ontario to um, understand that under the current constraints in place because of the pandemic, uh, it's impossible for them to really um, implement their own decision-making protocols to respond to all of these various requests for consultation for mining permits or the environmental assessments on the roads, which are ongoing. Um, and that's because, of course, the same as everyone else, it's we're not in a position to gather together. Um, you know, Nishtantika follows Anishinaabe law and those protocols demand in-person meetings, you know, talking with elders, really listening to a variety of different viewpoints before coming to a decision. And they want to be able to implement those protocols for deliberating. And they're not able to right now uh, because of the risk. And um, they've been explaining this patiently to Ontario over several months. And Ontario continues to say that, oh, well, you know, there are alternatives or we can use teleconferencing or um, lots of solutions that just aren't workable in Nishantaga where, you know, the the technology is, is not up to the same level it is in other places. And it also goes against their own, um, you know, traditions and protocols. You know, when I hear that, it, it just, it sounds like, as you point out in the article, more of the same and more of what we've heard over the years, uh, just the, 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 the kind of colonial thinking and, uh, and approach that has been taking, well, we're okay here. So mm-hmm. as long as we're okay, you know, we'll move forward with, with, with you know, if you're, if you, just because you're, you're not able to, uh, uh, have the same basic, uh, uh, level of technological, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, comfort that we do, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go through it, it's, it's because again, it won't be our discomfort. It will be at your end that, that's receiving the, the issues, not us. Yeah, you know, and I really agree with you, David, like the, there's a way in which, especially with respect to the environmental assessments on these mining roads that the government is saying, well, don't worry if you if you're not able to catch up right now, you know, you can always chime in later at a later stage. And it's really patronizing, right? Mm -hmm. Because the framework is set at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And the terms and the conditions and everything gets put on a path that it's very difficult to have any meaningful input if you're really only chiming in later. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I agree with you. It it is a colonial mindset and it's a patronizing attitude. And, you know, it comes at a time when all of these governments are talking about how committed they are to reconciliation and, you know, the courts are talking about the honor of the crown in conducting meaningful consultation. And, you know, it, it's easy to see how people would become very cynical about that in this context. You brought up the, the point about environmental protocols and, and uh, concerns and, and those kind of things. What do we know? Uh, because I believe the, the Ford government uh, uh, pulled back on some of those, those protocols, some of those concerns for environmental assessments uh, that, that would make it easier for, for mining to move forward. 
Right. Well, um, the, the Ford government is making uh, some changes to environmental assessment. Um, they are generally um, favoring business interests rather than environmental protection. Um, but, you know, in this case, it is a little bit complicated, too, the way those various proposals will unfold, and we don't completely understand it yet. Um, but what I would say is even under the regimes that are in place for environmental assessment, um, you know, those, those, the roads that are going forward are being put forward, you know, one small little piece at a time, um, such that it's very difficult for anyone to come in with broader arguments about the cumulative impacts of the roads plus the mining proposals and, you know, what, what the large scale effects on culture and economy and um, tradition in the indigenous communities there in Treaty 9 will be. So um, even under the environmental assessment regime as it stood before Ford made changes recently, um, it was, it, it's not a comprehensive way of thinking about you know, um, what is a future on the homelands uh, for these communities in Treaty 9? And it doesn't allow any scope for them to create that vision for themselves and implement it. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Dana Nadine Scott, and she is an associate professor at Osgoode Hall Law School and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. My old school, by the way. So always uh, always pleasure to have somebody uh, from York University on the show. We're talking to Dana about an article in the conversation that she co-authored, and it's about the push of mining that is continuing despite water crisis and issues in uh, Neskintaga First Nation in Ontario's North uh, Ring of Fire, one of the communities that uh, is affected by the Ring of Fire and the mining uh, push that's going on up there, of course, the other uh, the other uh, community which is has been and, and continues to be in the news is the community of Attawapiskat, which has shared similar issues uh, mm-hmm. regarding uh, water, suicide, uh, infrastructure, lack of housing, all those things we hear about. Um, but what is surprising from your article, Dana, that really stuck out to me, of course. And this is something that I've wondered about, uh, not so much in what you say here, because it talks about this. I, I, I was in Attawapiskat a number of years ago, and uh, I, I got to see the community firsthand. I got to see where they had to drive to to fill up their water uh, mm-hmm. bottles uh, and, and, and those kind of things. And I got to see the conditions in the community. And you talk about the, 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 the river, the Atapuscat River, and you say that, you know, surprisingly, though, there is one uh, region or there is one uh, place along that, uh, that river that does have clean water, and it is the De Beers-Victor Diamond Mine. Now, I know mm-hmm. that Atapuscat has agreements with uh, De Beers. I know that was mm-hmm. mentioned up there. You know, what surprises me is, one, as a good corporate member, 
Why are they not stepping in, first of all, because of the agreements they have with with this, these communities, to do something about the fresh water? If they, can, if they have fresh water, why are they not, you know, doing something about it? That's the first thing that comes to mind. Secondly is why, you know, and, and this is just me thinking off the top of my head. I would say the same thing with what we're seeing with this, uh, with with the Ring of Fire and what's going on up there. Why is maybe one of the first things that isn't put on the table is that you guys put clean water in these communities. That's the first mm-hmm. thing you do when you go in there. Bottom mm-hmm. line, no more discussion unless you agree to this. You know, why why can't those kind of things be discussed or, or put on the table, do you think? Those are great questions. Um, I, I think they can be put on the table, um, but... You know, I guess I would say we can complicate it in a number of ways. And, you know, this is maybe extending a little bit from what's in, you know, can fit under the constraints of 600 words in an op-ed as well. Mm. But, um, you know, like we, we did, we found it really um, important to make the point that, you know, of those communities along the Adwapskat River watershed, the De Beers Diamond Mine is the only one that, you know, has not gone through the settlement there had not gone through mm. water crises like this but you know on the other hand you might look at that and say well you know that's maybe that's because of uh you know short term investments and short term thinking so they went in they had 12 years for the life of the mine they got what they needed and they got out mm. and maybe they designed a water system that you know could work well mm. in that context for a limited number of workers or whatever mm. Mm. Um, because part of what the complaint has been in Atawapskat and Nishtantika, you know, that um, they're they're tired of the short-term fixes and the sure. band-aids that, and the solutions that don't last, right? So there's a different mentality when you're trying to support an industrial work camp for a limited amount of time or when you're trying to actually come up with, you know, long-term solutions that serve a, a community permanently on its homelands, right? Yeah. And so... Well, I kind of agree with you in terms of the instinct to, you know, really want to demand more from those uh, industry actors that want to go into the far north, you know, generate profits for their shareholders and then get out. Um, I do also, I don't want to let the governments off the hook here either, you know, like the the Treaty 9, you know, puts obligations on both Ontario and Canada and they really have to be the ones in there for the long haul, not saying that they shouldn't be putting in place, you know, laws and regulations that require more of those industrial yeah. actors that want to go in there, too. I agree. I understand exactly what you're saying, and I appreciate the fact that you brought that up. So thank mm-hmm. you in pointing that out. I guess why mm-hmm. I was thinking that is because I do remember hearing that part of the issue in the water and it's not completely from the De Beers and what's going on with what they're doing in the mining, but it it is partly impacted uh, in the water about what they are doing there in terms of the mining. Some of those some of those things in the water are mm-hmm. there naturally, um, mm-hmm. and but some of them are either either emphasized or or affected by the the mining as well. So uh, I guess mm-hmm. what what the point is that everybody has a responsibility. Um, and the government as well as as business. And yes, these businesses are going in there and they're making a profit. And let's not forget about that because yeah. whatever they're spending, uh, they are making profit on this when they walk away. And they shouldn't be, and I think there's more of this, this, this short-term thinking we see over and over again is not profitable in the long run. Mm-hmm. 
not for the yeah. planet, not for not for people. So those kind of things need to change. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, um, you know, thinking through that as well, I think, you know, might be the uh, methyl mercury that you're referring to mm. with respect to diamond mining. You know, like it is it is really hard to think of, think about um, the, the potential contamination of the river system, right? And in particular, the fish, which, mm. you know, uh, people in Nishantika call the Attawapscat River the lifeblood of the mm. people, right? Mm-hmm. And they rely on the sturgeon and, um, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot of cultural significance um, as well as, you know, sustenance that derives from that. So the contamination of the river system is a major threat and would be, you know, a, a really terrible outcome of any mining or that um, that was happening in that region. Um, and then you have, yeah, the water systems that are often um, designed poorly such that the the um, the contamination of the drinking water system, you know, is often related to the placement of the sewage outlet mm-hmm. or the spring flooding or the right. poor design, right? Yeah. And these mm-hmm. other these other things. So, you know, it, it's a complex social and ecological system with a lot of moving parts, right? Yeah. But yeah. you do get the overall sense that there's just a, a neglect that's underlining all of it. Um, you know, and an unwillingness to really solve the technical problems um, that makes you think that they're, you know, they're more about the disregard uh, for the people's well-being than they are, like, really actually technical challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dana, we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been a really pleasure speaking with you about this, and, and I appreciate the fact that you brought this uh, t- to our attention through your article in the conversation about uh, the mining push that continues uh, during the 2020 pandemic, despite the water issues that continue also with Neskataga First Nation. So I, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Well, thanks very much for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. That's the voice of Dana Nadine Scott, and she is an associate professor at Osgoode Hall Law School and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. She's also a co-director at Osgoode's Environmental Justice and Sustainability Clinic. That is this part of the show here on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us each and every day and listen in to uh, the great conversations that we bring you here on Element FM. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.